economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. My name is Russ McCullough, and I hold the Wayne Angel Chair of Economics here at Ottawa University, and as well as being the founder of the Gortney Institute. Uh, today, I have my colleagues, uh, Dr. Justin Clark, who is the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, and Dr. Peter Jacobson, our Gortney Institute Professor of Economic Education and Research. And today, we are going to talk about environmentalism and resource use and Peter is going to start us off with a provocative quote. And I forgot to mention that our graduate student is hopefully uh, not hurting himself snowboarding today in Idaho. So that's why Nate isn't along with us. So Peter, what do you got to say? There is effectively no difference between what people call renewable and non-renewable resources. To that's me, an outrage. To me, this distinction means absolutely nothing and we should do away with it. It, it does more harm than good. Well, wait a second. A renewable is good because it can be renewed and the non-renewable is fixed. And so if we use one more unit, that's one less unit we can't use. So there's a lot of issues with what you just said, but I'll start with the biggest one, which is the, the idea that non-renewable resources are fixed. This is sort of what the words imply. And that's why I think that this is a damaging distinction. The words imply that there are some amounts of, let's say oil, that is usually the really specific one that people are worried about is we're gonna run out of oil someday. Right. And uh, people have been saying that for literally a hundred years. I don't think there is a, a finite amount of oil in the world. And the reason I, I, I don't think that, or at least a finite amount of the services it provides, maybe is a better way to say that. And the reason I don't think that is that People don't actually want oil. You don't go to the pump to get a gallon of oil. You, you don't care about the gallon of oil. It's not like people are out there like, I need my 20 gallons for the month, otherwise I'm gonna be in trouble. People go to the pump so they can go somewhere else with their car. That's what matters to them. That's the end of their consumption. And the amount of oil that you need to go somewhere changes over time. So if would you call it an intermediate consumption good? It's, I just kind of made that up, but it kind of reminded me of kind of a supply chain-ish type of thing. That, that's one way you could sort of think of it like the utility you receive is the ultimate good. And then the, the good that you get along the way is something like oil that you use towards that end. Yeah, I, I would just say it's a good that you use for a specific end. And what's important to you is the end, not the good itself. You, you don't, you know, maybe like a chocolate bar is something that you care about the good itself. You, you care about like the one chocolate bar because that's exactly tied to the satisfaction. But over time, what, what could happen and has happened is like, imagine you have a hundred gallons of oil left and that's it. And you know, everybody's driving their cars and each car is getting 20 miles per gallon. Well, you could actually like look at how much people drive and do the math and see literally how much time it's gonna take to run out that oil out given that people drive a certain amount of day, given that they have a certain fuel efficiency and given that there's like some uh, get amounts of gallons of oil. What happens then if you double the efficiency of the engines? If every engine gets, you know, effectively, let's say 20 miles per gallon, now they're 40 miles per gallon. What happens to the amount of time that it takes for you to run out of the resource? Sounds like it just doubled. Yeah, it, it doubles. And so by increasing technology, 
we can actually effectively increase the amount of oil insofar as we care about oil in the economy. And there's no clear process that prevents this, except maybe like some eventual 7 billion years from now, like, you know, law of thermodynamics thing or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, and it seems like the, the more contemporary argument is that we need wind to substitute for the oil or solar to substitute for the oil. And those that sun shows up every day, except if you live in Seattle or something, but that's the renewable aspect of it. So there, there's still, I think, a fundamental difference, but that fundamental difference may not be that important, if that makes sense, I think is what we're maybe arguing. I think there's a couple key points here. First might be that I take it what Peter is saying is that things that we think of as non-renewable resources like oil even if there is in fact a fixed amount of oil on earth or in the universe or whatever, the amount of services that we can get from them is for all intents and purposes, not fixed. And it is a mistake to think that because the total amount of anything is fixed, that therefore, you know, in order to keep enjoying those kinds of services, we need to either restrict our use of it or move on to something else. Because for all intents and purposes, what we want isn't oil. What we want is the things that oil can do for us. And we can continue to multiply that technologically, even if the amount, the fixed amount of a resource is smaller or, or sorry, isn't smaller, but is fixed. And secondly, another issue is that we are, even if that uh, amount is fixed, we might not just technologically increase what we can get from each unit of that resource, but we might technologically discover that that fixed amount keeps getting bigger um, Mm. or our knowledge of what that amount is based on our technological ability to extract that resource. So here, this is something like, you know, fracking and getting oil out of sand in ways that previously we didn't think that oil was uh, available. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's a really good summary. And on the flip side of this argument is kind of this talk about, well, then what does this mean for renewable resources? Like, isn't there, you know, unlimited amount of sun out there? Well, in the same way that there's an unlimited amount of oil, there's an unlimited amount of, uh, of sun. And that is that we could perhaps get services from the sun into, into forever. But it's not just free services. We, we don't have immediate access to the energy the sun provides in the sense that we're talking about now, which is like powering your home or something like that. In other words, there's a cost to extracting energy from the sun, just like there is a cost to increasing the amount of oil services provided by oil. Both of these things come with a cost. And, and the question isn't, you know, which one is tied to some like physically finite amount of things. The question is, does it cost more to increase our oil's efficiency or to capture more energy for the sun? And this is a case-by-case basis. There's no categorical distinction between these. Well, I just want to add kind of the counter-argument to play devil's advocate, because I'm definitely not a doomsdayer, and I and I think technology would always provide. It's, it's actually more human ingenuity would always provide. I think we're very adaptive to our current situation to make something work. However, that said... I think there is a little bit of a bird in the hand is better than one in the bush argument that a lot of environmentalists might make that, yes, you're right. I see that there's a history of technology evolving and 
changing it from 20 miles to gallon to 40 miles per gallon, but can we rely on that technology to continue into the future? If we can't, then we need to manage our resources better today for what 200 years from now might look like. What do you say to that argument? Because I think there's something there. Yeah, so I think that there's a question of presumption here. It's like, do we presume technology is going to behave like it always has or a different way than it ever has before? I think my I, I'm more comfortable with the presumption that things will continue the way that they have. And what I mean by that is, for example, oil right now is less expensive in terms of people's time than it has ever been in human history. What that points to me to is that there's more oil relative to people's talent than there ever has been before. In other words, oil's less scarce than it has ever been before. And what I mean by that is, for example, over the last, I believe it's 40 years since 1980, the amount of oil you can get from working an hour has gone up three times. That is the amount of oil relative to the amount of resources you can get in an hour has tripled. Oil has effectively become less expensive. Well, in a market economy, when something's less expensive, it's because it's less scarce. And that's happened all throughout history. And it's happened with things like tin and copper and all these other non-renewable resources that we hear about, you know, air quotes there. And so I, I tend to think, you know, if there's things moving a direction and they've always been moving a direction, that the more reliable thing is to trust that they move that direction. That's a tough pill for, I think, people to swallow. But I, I mean, I tend to agree. I also thought that if you look at the the data, it has not been a, a stable path. It's actually worked to our favor. I think all would agree the Industrial Revolution and seven, late 1700s into the 1800s was this exponential growth of technology and productivity, right? And so is it reasonable to expect, if we look at that on a graph, it's increasing at an increasing rate, that it's going to keep doing that now? Or what trend are we predicting, you know, and how, do we really have a good fix on like Justin was saying, how much oil we actually have and whether we need to, if that exponential trend continues, well, yeah, then everything's going to be free in a hundred years and robots will control the world and, and we'll just get to play music and have uh, relationships with each other and talk all day about philosophy and other things. So I, I my point in bringing that up is that I don't think the data shows a stable like path, like for the first 4,000 years of history, it was pretty sucky, right? And then we had this nice technological bump. I think, there, I think there's always been modest improvements, but I, I agree with you definitely the trend is erratic. But I think that the sign has been pretty stable over time. And what I mean by that, listeners, is that things have been getting more abundant, maybe very small amounts, you know, for hundreds of years before the Industrial Revolution. Now it's by much larger amounts. Uh, but it's always sort of been the same trends. In, in the, the very long term, obviously, there, there are small disruptions along the way. But in the very long term, you know, all that we've ever seen is an, an increasing abundance of what we think of as, you know, fixed resources, uh, never like a decrease in, in any meaningful sense. And in the case of oil, what we want oil for is energy, right? That's um, right. And when you were saying the cost of oil is cheaper now than it has ever been before um, in terms of hours or whatever that it takes to extract it. And I mean, another way to say that is the cost of energy is cheaper now, right? And one of the other ways to think about this renewable versus non-renewable assets or resources is also to include another category, which is replaceable, right? If there's a number of substitutes, you mean? Yes. So, I mean, petroleum itself is a replacement and it is a replacement for 
whale oil. Right? <laughs> uh, whale oil was the oil that people used in lamps. And it was a great boon to everybody when we figured out that, you know, you could put a pipe in the ground in some places and get this resource that we could replace oil with. So even if we ran out of whale oil, we could replace that with something else. Maybe this lingering legacy of fear about running out of resources is still connected to whales, maybe, because we have endangered whales. Whales have been, you know, a highlight for the last hundred years, but certainly the last 50 years of save the whales. And, and so there's an example of a resource that was readily diminishing. And that was our response. But sure. But where I was going with this is that in addition to petroleum replacing whales, right, are there things that we can see on the horizon to replace petroleum with? And it seems like, you know, batteries are getting so much better right now that it's now actually feasible mm -hmm. to make an electric car that can be powered by a battery, which was, right. you know, ridiculous 15 yeah. years ago. And so even if a resource like oil, even if it were to actually run out, if we have readily replacements or ready replacements for it, maybe that that's not even a problem, even were it to be the case, which you were saying earlier that oil is going to run out. Yeah, substitution is a, another really important thing that explains why, you know, again, if you create a substitute for oil, you've effectively increased the supply of oil. Uh, another thing that I, I would say works as a substitute, again, the uh, to me, the key lesson here is that we should focus on what people want, not the, the ways by which they get it. Another substitute for oil is Zoom. And what I mean by that is a lot of people use oil to, to achieve the ends of getting into a meeting with people. Yeah. And granted, I don't think that like the quantity of Zoom meetings going on is going to last forever. But I do think there's probably going to be a movement towards a lot more digital meetings. And there already has been. There was with phones, by the way. Now there is. there was with FaceTime with family. Mm -hmm. The more ways that you have to communicate with people, the less you need oil to do that. And so... If you get stuck in this weird natural scientific way of looking that like we just have these categories of resources and there are different stocks that are running out, you totally miss what's really going on in the world is that people don't want oil, they want to see their family. And that can be achieved a lot of different ways. So before we head into break, I'll leave us with the teaser of these, this technology and the pace of technology. I certainly still would question to some degree, you know, how reliable that is moving into the future, even though I, by the way, wholeheartedly agree with it, but I think it's a reasonable argument. And so my teaser is to think about the institutions that are in place that allows technology to continue to develop at a pace and whether those institutions could be in jeopardy in different places around the world that would cause that pace to change. So we'll head into break and be back in a sec. We'll sneak in a little bit of a faith component in here too on if this is being good stewards of resources or not. Back in a bit. A bit. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to info at gortneyinstitute.org. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing faith and economics in action. We have a new PPE league, which is philosophy, politics, and economics starting up here next year. Kind of an exciting term where we're going to have schools competing. Philosophy component will revolve around the importance of reason and free and honest discourse. 
The politics component will highlight the historical importance of the rule of law and limited government and the promotion of human flourishing. And the economics component will focus in on the role of freedom and markets in generating prosperity, focusing on the works of economists in the tradition of Adam Smith, Mises, Hayek, and Thomas Sowell. So look forward to that. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like this, contact Peter or Russ or Justin today. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or reoccurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. Welcome back. Uh, we're going to continue on here with this institutional teaser that I left you with. So institutions are just man-made constraints on behavior. So it could be a building that constrains you from using having sunlight on the east side because no windows were there. So we can think of physical things as institutions, but we can also think of just laws on the books as institutions and possibly social norms. So it's not an official law on the book that we wait in line at the buffet when there's a long line of 20 people, maybe they're even properly socially distanced and we go cut in the line. That can be thought of as an institution. So things that we're, we were brought up with as Americans um, could be different than uh, what was done in India in terms of line cutting comes to mind with my three trips to India. So there's different social norms. Those can be institutions as well. So I I found I, I didn't make that one up. I found it in a book somewhere and it really made sense to me. Just think of them being man-made constraints as opposed to, since this is faith and economics, a God-made restraint like a natural disaster. So yes, the hurricane constrained our behavior, but that is not an institution. That was just nature that caused a constraint on our behavior that we weren't able to go use the road because it was underwater. So that was not an institution. So a man-made constraint on our behavior. And so, Justin, you wanted to lead us off here on thinking about this institutions as it relates to technology? Yeah. So I like this idea of thinking of institutions very broadly. And Russ, the teaser you left off with is, well, what kind of institutions would enable us to continue this technological progress, which, you know, you rightly pointed out, our argument might rely on continued technological progress. And somebody might say, well, if we can't count on technological progress, then we need to conserve these resources, right? And I thought it'd be fun to approach this from the opposite angle and say, let's say we wanted to retard uh, technological progress and make it the case that technological progress ceased. What kind of laws, practices, institutions, would we as kind of evil social scientists uh, try to implement in the world to make sure that technological progress didn't happen? And after we answer that question, then we can look around and say, well, are some of these policies being implemented? (laughs) Yeah. The first thing that pops into my mind is like punishing people who come up with technological responses or, or preventing reward would be another way to say this. When someone creates a new technology, you prevent them from reaping any sort of benefit from that. That might be like, like a new vaccine. Way. Yeah. <laughs> Could be. Or something else, but yes. Okay. Are there any types of punishment you'd have in mind or is there a, like a spectrum that you have? 
I, I guess we retraining camps might be one <laughs> over in the right. I mean, so so that I mean that's to the bring up China. That would be the ultimate. That, one. That's the extreme end, definitely. <laughs> uh, I I think there's a spectrum, and so like you can imagine a system where people are able to uh, reap a reward for their technology by selling it to people, and so you know any sort of punishment would be a system that allows you to get less by selling it, and so one could be you find a person every time they sell something. So they get to keep some of the reward that they got, but not all of it. You know, a more extreme version is you prevent them from selling it at all. You, you know, put a gun to their head and say, no, you can't sell that technology. We're going to take it and we're going to sell it or something like so that. So you can sell your technology, but 70% of it has to come to the public good. Yeah. So something like that. Another one could be, you know, hey, I know that you have this idea in your head and you saw someone else do this cool thing, but you're not allowed to try to do that thing yourself. Only that person can do it. That could be another way of, of punishing someone for trying to share technology. So I, I think there's, uh, you know, a lot of different ways and there's a gradient, you know, any sort of departure from a person just being able to sell it themselves is a form of punishment, even if they still end up a little bit better off. Yeah, and I guess for me, what came to mind was... Um just saying you can't use oil. So the punishment or the, I guess the policy, the institution would be, we know we're gonna run out of oil. So everybody has to cut back to 10% of what they were using before. So if we all cut back by 10%, then that will you know, save our oil supply for future generations. I could even hear a real positive spin coming off the podium of a slick politician, maybe something like that. So that's what kind of came to mind for me, some sort of prohibition like that on the use. So why do you think that would hurt the decision to create technology for oil? So I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. So the incentives no longer would be there. You're basically automatically restricting demand. So if we got our, our charts out and did a little supply and demand, we're like cutting the demand by 90% immediately, which is going to drop the price and then effectively drop the incentives or the profit motive for trying to do that good. And so some people might look at that and say, great, that's, that's exactly, that accomplished exactly what we wanted to do, right? But then the technology aspect of the thing that I think, and I don't want to go too far astray from how we kill it to, to why we don't want to do that, but I like to tell my students when we use the production possibilities concept is that if we have a new technology in oil, that actually allows us to have more beer and pizza. And the reason is not because we use oil directly for beer and pizza, but because as Peter pointed out, if we double the productivity, then that frees up resources that were being used for oil production that can now, that person might lose their job and, and might have to go work for the beer company, but it allows more consumption of all goods. And that's the miraculous thing about having technology occur in any sector is that it can allow more goods and services of all things and push out the consumption and production possibilities for the nation. So Justin, what, what else? Other institutions you had in mind that we could destroy that? I had in mind specifically with the energy sector, a kind of pincer approach where on the one hand, we try to eliminate use of fossil fuels like oil and coal, et cetera, while at the same time preventing things like safe nuclear energy from being deployable. Oh, yeah. And that seems like a, I mean, if 
you know, since we are here plotting the destruction of the ener energy sector, that seems like a great way to hit them from both sides. Yeah, right? that's interesting. I didn't mm -hmm. think of, so when you were doing the pincher, I'm going to bring in a third pincher. And that is to use the government to subsidize the ones that they like that are quote unquote, I have to put quotes now on the word renewable of wind and solar. So now we're going to be putting a damper on those nuclear and fossil fuels. And at the same time, we're going to use government funds to subsidize wind and solar, which is going to then naturally funnel people who are profit-minded that, oh, the government's telling me that wind and solar is profitable and it might be in the short term because of the subsidies, but is it sustainable over the long haul? And I think that's what we're finding in many cases. Germany pops to mind that they're, I think it was Germany, that is running out of real estate for windmills, literally. Like they've kind of figured out that if we were to supply all of the, let's say they're at, I'm going to make up a few numbers here, so forgive me, 15% of the energy is now supplied by wind. In order for them to make wind supply 50%, every square inch would have to be filled with a real estate of land would have to be filled with windmills in Germany. So it's like, it's not possible. And so little interesting things like that, that are really distortions of, of the progress that can be made otherwise. I think that's exactly what my pincer approach needs, right? We know that the triangle is nature's strongest shape. And when you <laughs> added your third pincer, there's no way for the sector to escape. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'll call it a pincer, but the one other thing that I was thinking of while you were both talking is uh, another way that you could discourage, you know, long-term technologies from being successful is by convincing everyone, whether it's through rhetoric or, 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 you know, more likely through like actual incentives, mm -hmm. convincing everyone to be consumers and to, uh, oh, be overly consumeristic. Yeah. Because if there is any policy that forces people to always consume instead of save, if it punishes savers, then there's not a bunch of people with money ready to finance long-term investment projects. And so the more we make savings difficult, the harder it is to have these long-term technologies and innovations. And so if I wanted to prevent these things from happening, I would encourage people to be consumers, maybe by finding their savings accounts like 2% every year or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. It just grates on me every time I hear it. Uh, I think it was just on NPR yesterday on something related to subsidies, but basically, and you know, the economy is built on consuming. So if consumption, and these are sometimes economists that get on that are interviewed and say something along the lines, and you know that consumption is, is one of the drivers of the economy. And it's like, that's so wrong. And, it's, it, and it's always the same thing. And it really comes to us from Lord Maynard Keynes, I think, is yeah. the, the thing that has persisted the most that have a consumption mentality that that's good. And when really, ultimately, what we're saying with these institutions is things that encourage savings and potentially human capital are the long-term drivers of prosperity and income. Yes. And to, to make explicit, because I, I've, I've danced around it a little bit, but, you know, like a 2% savings account tax, you might think, well, we don't have anything like that, you know, and it's true, we don't explicitly have that. But that's what inflation does, right? Is it makes the money that you put in your bank account become, if we have an inflation rate of 2%, 2% less valuable over the year. And so it de-incentivizes your, your desire to save, which as Russ pointed out, um, is a goal of a lot of Keynesian policies, yeah. because they believe consumption. The other thing I loved what you said that I think is right in line with where Justin was going is when you, I don't even know if you said propaganda or you were just saying it, but one way to destroy what 
the pace of technology would be to channel communications through a central place so that we know that all communications are are safe. And so I immediately thought of the propaganda that, you know, whether you want to go back to Nazi Germany or whether you want to go currently to present day China on how much filtering is done through the central planner. And if that's done, even if they have good intentions, they just, you know, Hayek reminds us that they just don't have enough knowledge to, to figure out what the latest, greatest next step is in conserving petroleum or whatever the case is. And so that can be a real downer on the pace of technology, I think. The propaganda might even take on like a very clever phrase, like the science is settled, you know, something snappy yeah, like that. Yeah, something snappy. And, and I think that's a good point you brought up for us, because I just wanted to, I'm not going to go through all these, but the government for has for a long time been arguing that we can't rely on oil because we're going to run out. Here we have, I'll just go through a few. Uh, there's several points here, but 1885, U.S. Geological Survey. The experts say there's little to no chance for oil in California. 1914, the Bureau of Mines, the total future, future production limit in the United States is 5.7 billion barrels of oil, perhaps a 10-year supply. To give you some reference, in 2014, we used 2.72 billion barrels of oil alone. So we did half of apparently what our total amount of production was in one year based on the 1914 estimates. Uh, United Nations, 1972, oil production will peak around the year 2000. Wrong again. 2007, this is the most recent one, and we'll see uh, you know, in 20 years when this is probably wrong. The U.S. Government Accountability Office is that oil production will peak sometime between now and 2040. My prediction is that's probably wrong. It might not be, by the way. Maybe technology will improve with substitutes or something like that. But oil production will not peak because we run out of that. I'm willing to make that prediction today. So the point is, you know, experts have been saying now literally for it looks like, you know, over 100, years, yeah, yeah. 100, 120 years that we're going to run out. We're not going to run out. <laughs> Peter, you had a faith pie into this. I, that was my other halftime teaser was bringing some sort of faith component into this. What were you thinking? Yeah, so oftentimes there are, are Bible verses that are brought up that explain that we should be good stewards of the earth. Uh, and, you know, I, I think like to varying degrees, I, I agree or disagree with these. Sometimes I think they're out of context. One that's often used is that the, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. That's Genesis 2.15. But I don't think it's a bad idea that like we should take care of the earth. I think I think that's a good idea. And so I'm not going to get too much into where the whether the Bible actually commands us to do that with earth to a certain degree. But I am going to say, if it's true that the Bible commands that, what should we do? Well, in my opinion... Uh, one thing that we need to do is not just consume less for the sake of consuming less. And the reason is related to something that Russ just said, is that a lot of the, the reason that we, you know, invest in these technologies that increase the supply of things. Let's use copper as maybe a, a less controversial example. There's no externality associated with copper. For a long time, people have said we need to curb our consumption of like, you know, the precious metals in the earth because there's a limited amount. Again, the same sort of theme. And uh, so to be a good steward, maybe we should save some of that copper for the future generations or something like that. But I would suggest exactly the opposite, is that if we curb our consumption today, there is less incentive, as Russ pointed out, to invest in technologies to increase the services that those quote-unquote limited resources provide in the future. And so actually, by curbing our consumption of things like oil or you know copper or other sort sort of resources like that, we could actually be destroying the amount of services we create with those things in the future. And so we could be worse stewards by curbing consumption today. 
it's it's sort of what you wouldn't expect, but economics give us, gives us that a lot. And another, you know, example of something that we shouldn't do is, as I mentioned before, there's a cost to harvesting energy from the sun. So it could be the case that the cost of harvesting energy from the sun in resources is higher than the cost of doubling the efficiency of something like gasoline. If that's the case, you are a better steward investing in gasoline, which we generally consider to be a non-renewable resource. You destroy more resources when you take energy from the sun. This is counterintuitive, but it's because we've been taught since the seventh grade that the sun is this infinite source of energy. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not. It's constrained by our, our technology and our ability to harvest energy from it, just like oil is. It's it's finite or infinite in the same way that oil is. The only thing I disagree way. with what you said is that that was started in kindergarten, not seventh grade. That's a good point. Yeah, I, I do remember <laughs> I do remember getting a little tree on Earth Day uh, in kindergarten that I threw away. So when I got this home. might be a little philosophical, so it might be Justin's input here, but I think some people would blame the Bible that we wrongly use the earth as a means to human ends and that the earth itself, I, I don't want to get too stretched out here, is a living, breathing thing and it's a, it's a being just like we are or whatever. So I, I think there is a, a claim there and, and that's where maybe Justin can help out, you know, how legitimate or otherwise. I, I think it's one of those things that you just have to agree to disagree if they think the earth's lives and breathes and we don't and we think it's uh, being a steward of good resources. As Peter was talking, I was thinking that the earth is a, a means to an end biblically to be used and cherished, but ultimately to help people. And so some of these policies that might drive up resource prices because of not using, let's say, petroleum as efficiently as we could, which means prices are higher, disproportionately impact the poor at the gas tank. If gas would be much cheaper had we not maybe did some, created some institutions that were, were changing things. And so I think in that light, I, I also agree with Peter that, you know, using more of it might help the poor proportionately more is the flip side of that. So I don't know, Justin, anything strike you with, with those comments from philosophical angle? Yeah, there's a big... You know, in the first half through probably the, you know, 70s, maybe up to the 80s, in the environmental ethics literature, there were a lot of attempts to blame so-called mistreatment of nature on a biblical view where they said, you know, the Bible says that man is, you know, the you know, at the top of the pyramid. And therefore, this view of the world is what has led capitalists, you know, Christian capitalist societies to absolutely just destroy their environment. And if we want to take care of the environment as we should going forward in the future, what we need to do is abandon this Judeo-Christian conception of man as kind of master of nature. And have a new religion of environmental. Well, without going into that, which should be its own podcast, <laughs> right. you find very few serious environmental ethicists today making that claim because they acknowledge that, well, actually there are a bunch of Christian organizations that are very conservative with regard to nature because, you know, if you look in the Bible, it doesn't say consume as much of nature as you possibly can and treat nature willy nilly it says to be a steward for it. So stewardship is one of the big themes biblically with regard to man's uh, duty and responsibility toward nature. And the second prong of the argument against this kind of caricature of Judeo-Christian uh, exploitation of nature is, 
okay, let's go take a look at the societies in the 20th century that were explicitly secular or not religious and look at how they treated the environment. Mm. And we go, are there regimes? Like, you know, can we look at what happened in the Great Leap Forward in communist China? Did they preserve nature very well? Well, no. In fact, they were, you know, not only did they mistreat their citizens so poorly, they tore down forests. And, mm-hmm. You know, people were eating the barks off, bark off trees. So it doesn't seem to be the case that this the uh, Judeo-Christian conception of man's relation to nature is responsible for environmental degradation. And it surely also doesn't seem to be the case that if we abandon this in favor of something else, that that other thing is necessarily going to better protect the environment. Yeah, I will, uh, to a certain extent, I don't want to get too far into this because I do think that there could be a whole other podcast about it, but there has been a resurgence just so, you know, the, the listeners don't think Russ is going maybe in a crazy direction here or that, you know, this is all in the past. There has been a resurgence in the idea, and this is from the World Economic Forum that I, I'm reading this, but also I read it it's late, like last week. There's been a resurgence in this idea that we need environmental personhood that we need to give rivers the same rights that we give people. Oh, and that, really? And yes. Yeah. That, that, now, uh, how, you know, sure. how, how ridiculous that is. I mean, it, it could be towards an end, in which case it maybe isn't so silly. It, it is kind of funny. And again, we need to circle back to it, how, you know, pagans feel the same way about nature now that our, our experts are saying that we should. But maybe that putting aside, I did also want to just plug really quick because I, I can't remember if I mentioned a lot of these ideas, uh, not totally based on, but at least refined from the late economist Julian Simon. And so he was the one who first put out in a, a book that that I read that, you know, people care about the services of the, the goods, not the goods themselves. And that should. So I just wanted to, to plug that citation there because this is not all original to me, though. I think, you know, we, we in this discussion have refined it, you know, in an original area. Certainly. So. As Justin was talking about tearing down the forests, and I couldn't help but think, the reason why they might not be good stewards and tearing down the forest is because they didn't allow markets to regulate the costs and benefits uh, to individuals making decisions. And therefore, as they're running out of resources, they're like, oh, there's a whole forest of trees over there. We need some money today. Let's go plow them down. Right. And so, again, that mentality of using up resources came about because of not allowing markets to be in place and also not allowing ownership. And ownership, yeah, individual ownership, which is one of our pillars we kind of circled around a little bit in terms of institutions that we hold near and dear here at the Gortney Institute with individual property rights. And it, and it's uh, related to the extent to which you let people save effectively. There's like a common model in your first year of, you know, graduate economics where, you know, if the interest rate is going to go down, you're going to you're going to chop down the tree sooner <laughs> because, you know, you, you want to sell today or sorry, as the interest rate goes up, you want to chop down the tree sooner. Yeah. So the idea is if, if you're not allowing, if you're in a society where you don't have like secure property rights over things, it makes more and more sense earlier and earlier to chop down trees rather than let them grow to their full potential and then sell them for a good price. Yeah. All right. Well, that looks like a good place to wrap today. I'd like to thank you all for listening. This has been a production of the Gortney Institute here at Ottawa University. Um, If you feel so inclined and like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating. That helps us rise through the ranks and have other people find us out there on the World Wide Web. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.